We're continuing in our commentary on the Gospels. I want to read from chapter 2 in the Gospel of Mark, which contains some very important material. I realize, as I've been studying this uh, with the satsangs in mind, that it will not be possible in the satsangs to cover basically um, every word minus doublets in the Gospels, which was my sort of my original plan. Although if, if uh, there is ever a published version of this, perhaps that will happen there. I do hope to cover the basic, all of the main issues, points, and stories, etc., in the main teaching that is presented. This is an important story, uh, in again, in the early part. We are still in the very early part of Jesus' ministry. This is an important story connected with the healing of the sick, which is um, an important point for us to grasp in relation to Mat. I will read the story first and then comment. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. He, of course, is Jesus. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Born of four means he was carried by four. B-O-R-N-E. They were bearing him. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, that is for the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, because it's a roof, a thatch roof as in Rajasthan, many of the Rajasthan houses are made of just thatch and turf, and that's what it would be. They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Bed, of course, is a pallet. It's not a big four-poster that they're carrying around. It's like a stretcher. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion, as I'm sure that they had not. This is really a magnificent story in many ways, and uh, it's fraught with meaning, which I hope we will be able to extract. A couple of minor points first. Capernaum still exists, by the way. It's a town in Galilee uh, called Kepharnaim in present-day Hebrew, and it's a little town. And one interesting point about Jesus that perhaps has not been brought out up till now, is that except for his time at Jerusalem, 
which may or may not have been only a few days at the very end of his life, he avoided cities like the plague. There were large cities in Galilee, relatively large cities, but they're not mentioned once in the Gospels, and yet we know they exist because they're mentioned in contemporary records. The towns that are mentioned in the Gospels, Capernaum, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, others like that, are little villages. They're tiny. And it is clear that Jesus had little interest in any community larger than a small village. Um, whether this was because of personal preference or whether it was because he simply couldn't reach people in larger cities, we don't know. But in any case, he was a very rural person. And uh, he his ministry was to rural people. The people who believed in him were villagers and peasants, most of whom, probably 99% of whom, were illiterate. Uh, they also spoke funny by uh, Jerusalem standards. Later on, we will probably read the section or some sections where the disciples are identified as Galileans by virtue of their speech. You are also one of them, someone says to Peter after Jesus has been arrested. Um, I can tell by your speech that you're a Galilean. They spoke in a rural dialect, hillbilly type uh, kind of dialect, which instantly signaled to the sophisticates of Jerusalem that they were hicks. And uh, Jesus was also like that. I, I, bring, I, bring, in the, I bring this point up uh, partly because uh, it's something that is not obvious unless we think about it, but also because, of course, it's been true of many masters down through history have been exactly uh, this way. Also the scene of the house. Now the house is a hut, of course. Jesus has come into it. And there's so many people in there that you can't get in through the door. And I don't know how many of you, I think some anyway, have been present uh, in similar scenes with the living master. But I have many memories of exactly this kind of scene with both Gopal Singh and also Rajiv Singh. Most vivid one in 1977, uh, in March, just before the first tour. I remember that we went to visit a lady's house in Delhi where uh, Master Kripal had promised her that he would come to her house uh, just before he left the body. And he died before he could do that. And when she met Sanchi through the agency of Mr. Oberoi, who many of you know, the first thing he said to her was, I will come to your house. And she instantly realized that the master was keeping his promise. And uh, so she invited him. And the satsangis came. I don't know how many there were, but all I know was that you couldn't move in that house. It was like anyone who tried to go anywhere, it was like waves in an ocean being set up. And it was just whole human waves were going back and forth when anybody tried to, to come in. A, a fellow came in late and tried to make his way into the room to get a good view of Sanchi. And in order for him to move, uh, it, was, it was really like waves of an ocean going back and forth in the room. So the, the situation that is depicted here is a familiar one uh, if we have had personal experience with the holy man. Now they're bringing someone sick of the palsy. Uh, Whenever we, when we consider Jesus' healing, okay, we all know that the masters forbid healing. We know or should know that Master Kripal Singh differentiated 
two types of healing. One in which the person who is doing the healing has to exert, and the other in which it simply happens by being in his proximity, which he pointed out was uh, the way in which Jesus accomplished his healing. Um, it's not entirely true that all of Jesus' healings were accomplished this way. There are some instances where he definitely did make some efforts. I wouldn't say that he necessarily exerted in a psychic way. There's no way of knowing that. But certainly there are cases, the celebrated case that Master used to quote where someone touched the hem of his garment, which we will read in due course. Uh, but in order to understand why he healed seemingly much more than the modern masters do, uh, it's important to grasp, I think, a few points. Well, first of all, the modern masters do heal. They don't heal very much. They don't advertise it. And uh, they don't like to think it. They don't like to lay emphasis on it. But I have had personal experience of, uh, of their healing people and of not only of healing but of a protection in a sense that prevented you from being needed to be healed, which has happened to me several times. Um, and I know people who have been healed and who have told me, including some quite spectacular instances, perhaps the most famous that I know of is the boy who used to live at Salon Ashram who was the only child of his mother. Uh, he was running playing one day, fell, hit his head on a sharp edge of a rock and this broke it right open, so much so that his brains were actually spilled out onto the ground, to some extent anyway. Uh, they ran and called the master and the master came running, took his turban off, scooped up everything that had fallen out, shoved it back into the head, wrapped it up in his turban and sent the boy off to the hospital. When he got there, he had a concussion and a uh, big headache few other things and was okay in a day or two. Now, I can't verify every detail in that story, but it nevertheless happened because I know the person to whom it happened and I talked to several eyewitnesses. So there are similar stories told of Sanchi and Baba Samhain Singh and in fact of all masters. So that all masters have healed. The difference seems to be in the emphasis. And I think here that we have to recognize that the Gospels in the form that we have them, and this is something I've mentioned before, and will have to mention many more times probably, are after all their final versions at least, are edited by people who did not fully comprehend the real mission of Jesus. There is always a looking back through a theological maze uh, in which the things that Jesus said and did are made to conform, to some extent anyway, I don't say that's happened a lot, and I think we can see between the lines, but there is a, a, a matter of emphasis, certainly, and of things left out, as we have seen, not entirely because of ill will, but because of uh, the wish to be secret, so that we don't always, the full significance of what happens is not always shown. If you eliminate all of the vague references, okay, there are actually 12 incidents in all four Gospels in which Jesus heals somebody. This does not count the exorcisms or the casting out of devils, which we will consider at another time, nor does it include the raising people from the dead, of which there are three instances. Uh, it includes what we would call healing, physical healing. There are 12 cases that are distinct and separate and are, are given in some detail. 
there are a lot of vague references to many other healings. In some cases, there are doublets. In other words, the same story is told more than once, some of them in all four of the Gospels. So that it's it's hard to be exactly sure, but scholars now think that they have pinpointed exactly 12 distinct cases, which is not really a, a whole lot, uh, depending on how long his ministry was. There is no question that the Gospels present him very largely as a healer. But the reason for this, again, has to be sought for in the faith of the day. Now, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, the people who came to him, uh, first of all, they, there were no doctors in the Jewish community of, of uh, 2,000 years ago. This is, a, again, a very interesting phenomenon which is not obvious on the surface. But if you read the Bible carefully, from beginning to end, there are almost no references to physicians anywhere all the way through. And the reason is simple, that the Hebrew people did not believe in them. They believed instead that illness was caused by sin and that illness was cured when the sin was either expiated, that is, worked out, or forgiven. And that, therefore, it was the point of a doctor. They would sometimes go to a priest and arrange for some ritual, possibly a sacrifice, to be performed, or they would go to a prophet and ask him to heal them. And the stories of some of the Old Testament prophets, at least, including Elijah and Elisha particularly, possibly others, uh, show that they did do healing of the same sort that Jesus did. Now, understanding this, see, what does this mean? When Jesus is healing, therefore has the exact implication to the crowd that he is forgiving the sins of the person who is being healed, which is exactly what he says. He said, when Jesus saw their faith, now again, remember what we said last week about what believing in Jesus meant in the terms of Jesus' lifetime and what he himself said. Uh, this recognition that we spoke of and compared it to incidents that are very familiar to us, such as Harnam Singh, the Master Kripal, the Muslim peasant, Salam Singh, and so forth. Uh, obviously, this man with the palsy and his friends had this kind of recognition. Obviously, they had no theological understanding of the vicarious atonement and the resurrection that hadn't happened yet and all those things. Uh, what they saw was that here was someone who could help them and they recognized that very clearly. Now, bear in mind that the person who has the palsy is not coming to him the way a patient would come to a modern doctor. He is coming to him to have his sins forgiven because he knows this is a holy man. And his, his assumption because this is the assumption under which he operates, that when his sins are forgiven, that his illness will lift. So this is the that out of which these people are coming. When Jesus sees them, okay, he responds in exactly the way they expect him to. And he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. He doesn't say you are cured. Neither does he say, interestingly enough, Son, I forgive your sins. He's stating a fact. Your sins are forgiven. Strictly speaking, the sins are forgiven by God because he has come to the Son of God, you might say, because he has recognized that wherein God is working. Therefore, it follows that his sins are forgiven. It's sort of a statement of fact. Okay. Now, the scribes who are sitting there and objecting to this, and we have to realize that the 
the um, opposition of the religious establishment of the day has a lot of facets. We've only begun to get into this. Um, why there was so much of it and who it was exactly that was opposing. It's easy. The, the Gospels do tend to oversimplify in some cases to mislead. And so it's, it's easy to get misapprehensions. Um, but basically, it's a question of different sects of Judaism. Uh, Jesus is operating in the, within the context of the Hasid, of the holy man. Okay, who has authority direct from God in the, in the prophetic tradition, as we have seen. Uh, the scribes are representing the, the, uh, the position of, we could say the priestly, it's the heirs of the priestly tradition in a way, except that they're not concerned primarily with the temple and with the sacrificial ritual, but rather with the keeping of the law on a day-to-day basis. Um, they don't necessarily believe in holy men. They believe in duly constituted authority passed along in a very legal way, as religious establishments still tend to do and still tend to be distrustful of holy men. They consider that they're all fakes. And of course, many of them are and always have been. So, uh, they hear Jesus saying, they don't quite hear him right. Uh, they assume that he is saying, I am forgiving your sins. Actually, he is stating a fact, the sins are forgiven. And they say, uh, so who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus, in his answer, then, uh, as a matter of fact, confirms the identity, the identification of the illness with the fact of previous sin. He confirms, in other words, the law of karma. And this is a curious thing. And in order to realize... um, the total implication of this, we have to again remember that in the popular Judaism of this day, which had room, as we have seen, for holy men, and as had room, as we have seen, for spiritual exercises in which people actually ascended to heaven in their lifetime, uh, that this same popular Judaism also believed in reincarnation and more than one lifetime. And therefore, uh, the identification of sin with disease becomes possible for a humane person. See, otherwise, if it's only in terms of one lifetime, and this is the philosophical conundrum within the book of Job also, uh, then we have a very monstrous doctrine because in the first place, you can easily you know, say, ha ha, it's your fault. You're sick. Well, you've done something wrong. I mean, why should I feel bad for you? You should have been better, kid. You know, like that. And we can easily get into that. And, uh, of course, such an attitude is exactly opposite of that which the masters want us to have. But if it goes back, if we have more than one lifetime, maybe thousands to draw from, then we're all in the same boat. Nobody knows what he has done. Nobody has any idea what he has to work off. So that um, if someone gets ill, we can know, A, that it is definitely their fault. That's true. But B, that to blame them for it is is the most ridiculous thing imaginable because, among other things, the same thing could happen to us uh, tomorrow because we don't know either what lies in our own background. So Jesus here is confirming the doctrine that illness is due to karma in a way, uh, although the idea of reincarnation is not specifically mentioned here, it may have been in the secret gospel that 
uh, fitted in and around this gospel. Um, there are several places in the gospels, as we will see, where the idea of reincarnation is skirted and it's implied. It's not ever specifically stated, but without it, this thing stated doesn't make sense. And this is one of them, um, that the identification of disease with karma is not really possible without the idea of previous lives. So, Jesus confirms this by saying, so that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. God has given him that power. Then, all right, get up, take up thy bed and go thy way. In other words, the healing consists of forgiving him. The healing follows from the forgiveness. It is not a question of someone healing somebody. It is a question of someone forgiving somebody in such a way that the consequences of that which is forgiven drop away. And uh, I think that this is at the bottom of all of the healings that Jesus did do. And I think it's at the bottom of all of the healings that any master does. Because the master has, um, Jesus said this, it's confirmed many places throughout the Gospels, but the modern masters have also said it, and they've said it a lot, um, that the power is given to the master to decide how to deal with those who come to him. If he wants to give them a hard time, because if that's what they need in order to do what has to be done, then he will do it. But if he wants to take on himself that hard time, because this is the other side of this particular coin, is that the consequences, what happens when the sins are forgiven, okay, they're shortcutted. In other words, they're forgiven before the thing is worked through. Okay, we know that Kyle is very strict, that the laws of his regions are very heavy, and in order for that to uh, work, then the consequences of that have to go somewhere, and they go onto the master's body, uh, either right away, in other words, he gets sick instead, or they're piled up and he works them off in the future, such as being nailed to the cross, for example. Uh, if he gets enough suffering and pain and misery that he has taken on from others piled up on him, then something like death on the cross has to happen in order for him to work that off. Or he may die uh, a very painful death in other ways. All masters have said that masters do this. All masters have said that uh, that it's not a, that it's better if the masters don't do it. Nonetheless, they do it. They do it because they have compassion. Sometimes they do it because disciples compel them to do it without fully understanding the consequences. Sanji has told the story often of uh, the time when he had a uh, fever and Master Kapal was due to come to Rajasthan and he was very ill and some friends of his cabled master in Delhi that Sanji was very ill and, uh, and then came back and told him in the meantime, Sanchi got better right away. And they came back and told him, and said, Aha, you see, the master has cured you. We told him you're ill and now he has cured you. And Sanchi was very upset with them because in so doing, uh, he knew that they had given it to the master. And he did come a few days later. He didn't come right away. He came a few days later, very sick and pale and shaky from having been in bed with a heavy fever. And when people indicated that... Um, they were sorry he was late. He indicated that it was 
Sanchi's fault because he had taken it from him. Uh, there are many stories like this, and it's not only the disciples, although masters do do it for their disciples, um, it is perhaps not unreasonable to identify or to see a connection between the India-Pakistan war and the last illness of Baba Salad Singh, which were almost identical in time. Uh, the war came a little earlier, and hundreds of thousands of people were murdered, tortured, raped. These are people uh, who lived right around Madeira. In other words, this was happening right in Salad Singh's country, and I say right in his territory. And uh, I don't think that any disciples were involved in this, but people um, with whom, many of whom had undoubtedly had his darshan were. We know that, that, that he gave refuge to many refugees of both sides, both Muslims and Hindus, in his ashram. And uh, we can assume that he did other things too and left perhaps ten years early, partially at least because of this. Um, in the case of Master Kripal, the Bangladesh War, uh, again, tremendous atrocities occurred shortly before uh, he left the body. Actually, just a few months before he transferred his power to Sanchi, um, after which he was never as strong as he had been before. So, uh, these things happen. They happen in the lives of all masters, all of whom say, however, that it's better not to do it. And uh, there's a lot of paradoxes. That's all I could say on that on that subject. But remember also that when Master Kripal was asked at one time why Jesus was the only master who died for the sins of the world, he said that all masters have died for the sins of the world. And this is uh, what he means, I think that the great majority of masters have died difficult deaths, not that their leaving the body was difficult, but that they did suffer pain, and in many cases it was violent. In other words, other people murdered them. The, the norm rather than the exception. And uh, this is undoubtedly because, and in fact they specifically say that it is because they take on other people's, the consequences of other people's sins. So when we see this happening, Jesus doing this, I mean, this is the way in which the crucifixion looms up uh, closer and closer on the horizon, and it is what is—it is the truth behind the idea of vicarious atonement, um, which is not a legalistic thing that God has done uh, in order to uh, fulfill the ancient sacrificial ritual found in the Torah, but rather. Uh, it's the outcome of the natural law of forgiveness and compassion. And there is some truth in it, as I said uh, some time ago. So, this is the, the implications or the point of that particular story. Um, I, sh- and I should make it plain. Obviously, uh, modern civilization does contain doctors. And the masters have made it plain that there is more than one way to deal with this stuff. It's true that if if the ultimate um, understanding of these things, that if the sins are forgiven, then it's like pulling the pin out 
from the complex that holds the illness together. But that's on a, on a uh, metaphysical level. It does not follow that um, working within the domain of Kao and on the, using the laws of nature that uh, uh, a similar result can be achieved coming from the other direction. And in fact, the masters say that it can. Um, and that uh, doctors do indeed accomplish something and that disciples should go to them. It is no part of the path to refuse to go to a doctor uh, on the grounds that you uh, deserve the illness because your karma is bad. Uh, Samhain Singh says very specifically that, yes, this illness is due to karma, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take steps to get the nuisance corrected. Taking of steps um, in itself is one of the things which works out that the sin is finally expiated. In other words, going to doctors is not always that easy. Uh, oftentimes they're expensive. Many times they it's not nearby. Uh, sometimes the treatment is more painful than the disease. And so it goes. And uh, all of these things also tend to, to uh, work in that direction. And it's also true. In the letter of Baba Silencing that is printed in this month's magazine, the one that is the commentary on Sanchi's commentary that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he goes into a lot about the the difference in perspective from the top and the bottom. And here we really have to stretch our minds because uh, from the top it is true that God is the only doer. And from the top it is true that illness is a result of karma and will be cured when the karma is finished up. But from the bottom... It's a different story. And as long as we are looking from the bottom, it's important that we uh, obey the laws of the bottom so that uh, it all ties in together. In any case, you should be aware that these people coming to Jesus to be healed had no alternative, but possibly another holy man if they could find one. And there were others around, by the way. The idea of the Hasid uh, who cast out devils, who healed, and who taught with authority um, is not as unique as the history of the early church would have us believe. There are several others documented and known who did not become messiahs, who may or may not have been of tremendously high stature, but who nonetheless existed and who had followings uh, very similar to that of Jesus. So the phenomenon of the holy man uh was definitely there. Note also that Jesus again, in referring to himself, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Again, he is differentiating. Here, obviously, in the context, uh, he's differentiating because obviously God certainly has power to forgive sins. But he is saying the human pole, in other words, the man, the man through whom God works, whoever he may be, is implied has power on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't say only so that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. Although if he did, it would not uh, be that different. And I'll go on a few more verses here because this is a really interesting chapter, I think, that many things are covered. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. 
this is a simple one verse thing. In the other gospels, by the way, or in the gospel of Matthew, Levi is called Matthew, and it is thought that he had two names, uh, and that it is the same person who either wrote or began writing the gospel called by that name. Uh, the receipt of custom means he was a tax collector, and that's the term publican that is used throughout the gospel. It means tax collectors, and the tax collectors were hated. They were hated in a way that, um, well, I don't know if there's a modern, in our society right at the moment, there probably is not a modern uh, equivalent. But the people at large considered them as traitors. Uh, most of them, not so much the ones in Galilee, interestingly, but the ones in Judea, worked for the Roman Empire. And the nationalists, the patriots, the zealot movement, in other words, considered that they had sold out. Furthermore, they were corrupt, by and large. And they genuinely did the people a great harm by charging them more than they needed to and keeping the rest. And so that they were absolutely despised people. And here, Jesus is selecting one of them as a disciple. This is an absolutely mind-blowing thing. And it is uh, part of a general trend in the Gospels, which is perhaps the most forgotten thing in subsequent Christian history of all, of the fact that uh, Jesus' predilections, his preferences, are invariably for the down and outer. That is, not necessarily the poor people, although he certainly did have a great rapport with the poor uh, and told them they were blessed and so forth, but with the people who were despised by others. Um, for one reason or another. It's almost as though if anyone was despised or hated or disliked, then he made a point to keep their company. For whatever reason. Because it was the next thing, it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, and the word meat here means only dinner, does not mean flesh. That's a later use of the word. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Uh, he had a very special appeal to these people. Publicans and sinners means mostly tax collectors and prostitutes. Those are the euphemisms that are used. Tax collectors, the, the uh, corrupt people waxing rich on the other people's money, despised by everyone, considered to be traitors, and prostitutes. And these are the people that Jesus liked to sit with. When the scribes and Pharisees, okay, actually the word should be scribes of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees themselves are probably not involved here, saw him eat with publicans and sinners. They said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Very famous verse, but very few people um, really uh, think in terms of its implications. In other words, who will the master then associate with? Who will he care about? And is he not interested in the righteous? Yes, masters are interested in the righteous, but the point is, are the righteous interested in them? There are, there are cases throughout the Gospels where Jesus... Um, tells story after story of people who were good, in quotes, okay, therefore they didn't think they needed anything more. They thought they were in great shape. 
And believe me, I mean, people still think like that. There was a survey made shortly after the Second World War in which the survey was re- recounted in a book that was very popular at the time, which I read, called Protestant Catholic Jew by Will Hirschberg, sort of a sociological study. And these people, the, the question was put to them, uh, do you feel that you live up to the commandments, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength, which we read just a few weeks ago. At something like 77% of the people questioned indicated that they did live up to those commandments. And I submit that when people think like this and feel like this, there is precious little that a master can do. It is those who are guilt-ridden, those who are very well aware that they are not good, who are seeing the true state of affairs. They are not necessarily worse than those who don't see it, but they see the true state of affairs that Jesus can reach or that any master can reach. That is why um, we should know that um, in terms of someone said to me or wrote to me the other day that they were the worst possible disciple, um, this and that. And I wrote back that we all are. That um, if the Master, if we ever thought that we weren't, okay, we would stop being receptive to the Master right away because uh, it is our willingness to admit that we haven't done so well that makes us able to accept some help. Without that, we wouldn't get anywhere. So the tax collectors and the prostitutes saw something. They saw hope. Also, he treated them like human beings. Master Kripal has described in his uh, quite magnificent talk about his early days um, how three days before he retired, a man came to work in the office of government where he worked. He was just a peasant-type guy, low-caste person, um, did menial labor around. And on the retirement day in which the master was leaving, this fellow was crying like anything. And the master said, well, why are you crying? You hardly know me. I've only, you've only been here three days. The other people at least have seen something of me. But what have you seen? Why, why are you crying? And he said, well, you treated me like a man. And master said that this is what is wanted. And obviously Jesus treated these people as though they were people, not as though they were dirt under the feet and so forth. It's an important point. Um, You know, this basic idea of respect for children of God because they are children of God, which all masters have laid emphasis on, which we can easily forget. It's one of the problems with an outlook which sees mostly morality in the teachings of the masters. Um, It's one of the things that happens in Blake's words when Satan, with his black bow bent, the moral law from the gospel rent, he forged some kind of a sword with which he wounded mercy's lord. Something, I've forgotten the exact words, but uh, the point is that when that happens, then the teachings of the masters are perverted. He is teaching morality in a way, but it can't be, it's not removed from everything else. It has to come out of love, forgiveness, and a basic respect for human beings as human beings, regardless of what they have done. And uh, when that is there, then 
other things follow and the master can do his work. When it's not there, we tend to think in terms of us and them, good guys and bad guys, identifying ourselves with the good guys, and uh, then comes in judgment of others, lack of forgiveness. When that happens, we get closed off. And as Master used to say, again quoting Jesus, how do you expect forgiveness from God if you cannot forgive others? And so it goes. All right, we'll leave off here for this week and continue next week um, along the same lines. <laughs>